When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Everyone, John Wertheim here. It's this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. Our guest this week is Sasha Bain, a longtime hitting partner and coach. He's worked with Serena Williams, Sloane Stevens, Carolyn Wozniacki, of course, Naomi Osaka, coaching her for both of her major title wins at the 2018 U.S. Open and the 2019 Australian Open. They split shortly thereafter. That did not, however, stop him from writing a book, um, Strengthen Your Mind, 50 Habits for Mental Change, is Sasha's new book. We uh, talked to him a bit about that, a bit about his coaching experiences, some life hacks for people who travel. Good, wide-ranging tennis conversation with someone uh, who I've always enjoyed talking to. He's been on the podcast before. Uh, Candid conversation, and uh, let's just go right to it. Here's Sasha. Before before we start, you, you have to tell me, for once and for all, how are we pronouncing your last name? That's what I always say, and it's you. You got fifty translations. Bain. Very good. Yeah, exactly. Bajin. Bain. B u i i n. We're halfway between uh, the French Open and Wimbledon. Where Where are we getting you? Where Where are you today? I'm I'm in France. We um we left from Birmingham to Paris. Yes, uh, two days ago. Um, Kiki slid a little bit on um, on the grass court, you know, has had a minor minor injury, and then um, also has a small a small virus, and we went back here to take uh, just two days off, and um, yeah, get checked by the doctors, and uh, make sure that she's ready for Wimbledon. So yeah, we went back home. This is your life. I mean, this this is uh, part of what it means to coach a player, isn't it? That you never never quite sure uh, where you're going to be one week to the next. Yeah, make it a day to the next, not even a week. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but that's um, that's how it is. That's what we sign up for. We are uh, we're about ten days after the French Open. We're about ten or twelve days before Wimbledon. How, how in 2019? How big a transition is this? What what are the biggest keys going from clay to grass? I mean, most of it, of course, is footwork. You know, you um, you have to move differently. You um, you have to adjust your timing. Um, but all that starts with your feet and um, how you respond. 
know, um, getting to the ball, stop and go, um, change of direction, you know, all of it is a little different. You have different types of muscle you use on clay than you use on grass court. So um, most of it is definitely footwork. And, um, yeah, that's um, that's one of the biggest transitions, you know, different shoes. Um, obviously, the ball bounces different, you know. So getting that timing, getting a good feel, um, for me, always starts, um, starts from the feet. And then that's the most important thing, yeah. How do you uh, how do you assess Kiki's game on uh, on grass? What do you expect from her? Um, I think she has a good game for grass. You know, um, she is a former Wimbledon junior champion, champion or finals. I'm not. I think I think she won it. I'm not 100 percent sure. Now. I don't want to say anything wrong. Um, <laughs> but um, no, I think she has. Um, I think she has a, a very good chance on grass. You know, she has. A, a very tricky game, you know, she can mix up the ball very well, she has phenomenal volleys, you know, she's very comfortable at the net, which is obviously really good for the surface. Um, it's hard to hit passing shots if you don't have too much time, you know, and um, yeah, we we go there with with the mindset, same as we go everywhere else, to um, take it one match at a time, but um, to go to go till the end, absolutely. She, she went to the end in Paris. With uh, with a partner. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was um, it was a was a good success for her. I'm really happy. Um, you know, she um, got to be number one in the world in doubles. That was beautiful. Obviously, priorities was the was the singles, but this is absolutely the next best thing you can get. And um, was um, was really happy for her and her her, her teammate. You know, they played some tough doubles matches along the way. And, um, you know, that also helps the confidence and prepare. Um, doubles helps you always prepare a little bit for the grass court season as well. So just good things, actually, you can take from that. So Wim Wimbledon finals are, uh, I believe, June 13th, yeah, July 13th and 14th. You, you have a book coming out, if my math is right, the day of the Wimbledon semifinals on July 11th. That's when uh, exactly. your, your, your book is published. Uh, you, you've got to tell me first of all how this project came about. Was was this a after the U.S. Open with Naomi? H how did you end up writing a book in such a short amount of time? Well, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, obviously the success um, um, we had with Naomi. Um, you know, going back to Tokyo, they were really interested in what my philosophy was and um, what's the secret and you know how. How did I approach? How do I approach things? And um, I got a couple of book offers. Um, turned them all down in the beginning because I didn't still feel like the time was right. And they all kind of like wanted me to write uh, about a certain thing that I didn't want to write and felt like I didn't want to share. But then, the, you know, I always had something like this on my mind, and now it's always something I wanted to do. And I'm very passionate about what I do, and I really want to help people. And then. Um, a publisher approached me with saying, listen, you can write about whatever you like, but we really would want to hear something from you. And then I, I chose the topic of mental strength um, because I feel like that's where most people, you know, where I can help most people. And that's also like one area where I'm really good at making people feel comfortable, making sure to get the best out of them on a daily basis. And I feel like that starts with with the mind, you know, it all starts in your mind and the body follows. And, you know, there's a lot I've learned along the way from working with all these great players. 
Sloan, Vika, you know, I've learned so much from them and I feel like I would love to share what I've learned on working on that high level. I would love to share that with the people and um, it was a super fun process, you know, I have an unbelievable partner who helped me with the book, you know, Mark Hodgkins. And um, yeah, he flew to Florida in the off season and um, while working with Naomi, preparing encore we went back home you know worked on the book and then um had a couple of late nights on the road as well but um since it's something i love what i do it was it was kind of easy in that way but um, i'm excited about it and i hope i hope <laughs> i hope, uh, hope you guys like it and i hope i can help at least one person making their life a little bit easier you know that's the goal and were you drawing on your experience with Serena and Vika and, and Carolina, or, or is this specific to Naomi? No, no, no. This is not specific to Naomi. This is um, there's like 50 mini chapters in the book about what I've come across, what I think that could really help people making their lives a little bit easier. You know, it starts with um, as it goes from body language to um, getting enough rest. To understanding how important sleep is to making sure you change your environment things that you can use on a daily basis you know like i i found it um, very interesting that you know we people yes we do travel a lot and it's really hard but at the same time there's so much benefit to you know changing your environment every now and then and i really want to kind of help what i've learned from my life on tour to give people who have not the ability to travel so much and, and, and change their environment, but they understand, you know, if I go to a job every day, you know, day in, day out, and hours seem long and boring and stuff, you know, I want to tell them, look, you know, change up your workplace once in a while, you know, invest into a new desk, buy a new plant, a new light, just minor changes that I found, you know, when I'm on tour, going into the gym, after going 10 days, two weeks into the same gym, you know, my energy kind of drops a little bit because I'm so used to the environment and it's nothing new. And these are little things that I picked up along the way where I was like, oh, you know, look, I'm, I'm in a new place. All of a sudden I start working more different and I'm, I'm more energized and this and that. And so, you know, it's, I found that very interesting. I found it interesting how important, you know, even the mattresses, you know, and how, how little people know about about their own sleep you know they know more about their tv in the living room than they know what their mattress is made of and you spend one third of your life sleeping you know so that's just little stuff that you don't pay too much attention to but once you start traveling and you are in a hotel where the mattress really is uncomfortable for you you appreciate a good mattress you know and then you'll think about it in a different way and understanding that sleep and rest will make you work harder and it's not just about work so just trying to help from everywhere um that whatever i've learned along the way trying to put that onto writing and um yeah and then helping helping people in that way keep going with that i mean i think that that's really interesting and when you you talk to players a lot of times they talk about their health but a lot of times they talk about their fatigue and i've been on the road for a long time and, and what you said i'm, yeah. I'm a little jet lagged how well i mean there are no home games in tennis right i mean you're always you're basically always in a hotel room you're always on the road how else can players use that to their advantage 
Well, there is a certain, you know, it starts, either it starts with a routine that you get used to, then after a while, you know, obviously players, they've been to the same spot, like, you know, the same the same place like two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times already. So they do have their restaurants they like. They do have their places they feel most comfortable with. They do get a hotel which they like, but it's all about adjusting that slowly, you know. So, of course, there's going to be a hotel where we check in. Like, you know, like we had actually, I know, just as a small example, um, Naomi and Kay, they both kind of struggled with the mattress they had during the U.S. Open. You know, so obviously, if you can't sleep well and get the rest you need, you can perform as well. You know, it's not just about all push, 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 but you also need to focus on recovery. So then, of course, you have to adjust, you know, your your sleep. And we try to find like something to put over the mattress. And um, maybe next year we won't waste two nights of sleep and then maybe sacrifice two good practice days by not getting the rest we need because we know immediately. Uh, this hotel, I did this last year, it helped me, bam, sold, you know. So, um, other than that, uh, jet lag, you know, jet lag is something that's very tough, you know. Uh, luckily, that's the guys who, who have a daily job where they go to work, they don't have to worry about that too much, and there's no secret about it. You just have to fight through the first day. But um, there is certain ways of looking at things and doing stuff that maybe you like, you know, especially in a city you're very familiar with. It'll help you get through the day a little quicker. I'm hearing you tell me, I'm hearing you say this, and I'm thinking about the very, very top players who don't go through uh, airport security lines like the rest of us, and they stay wherever they want to stay and can bring childcare with them. How big an advantage do you think it is? for a Roger, a Rafa, a Serena, a Novak to be able to manipulate yeah. their, their, you know, they sort of manipulate their surroundings in a way that the guy ranked number 50 probably can't. I, I think that's, that's one of the biggest, biggest reasons why, for example, I've been so successful with my players too. I do believe that that's also, it starts from the coach and the whole team, you know, every team I worked with, we were always going above and beyond whatever we were necessary to do, actually, what was in our job description. And so that's why to this day, if my player needs me to get laundry or bring her food or do something, um, whatever, whatever the player has to not think about and spend just a tiny bit less energy thinking about outside of the tennis court, is a winning situation already for for that individual because then I do believe they can project everything else on court. You know, they don't have to worry about booking cars. They don't have to worry about yeah, watching baby and trying to organize. Of course, you're gonna have way more patience, attention span, and focus and energy that you can project towards your your yeah towards your job, towards what you need to do. So I think that that's very essential, and I think that that starts with. It's not even so much than any, but it starts, yeah, with the coach, and I do believe that we can do it there a lot. But that's why, you know, I, I always wanted to go above and beyond whatever I can do. It starts with, yeah, getting cars, gripping rackets, um, making sure the balls are ready, um, being on court, and all these little things add up. And um, I think that that's very, very important. It's one of the biggest things, I think. I, I want to ask you, um, I, I want to ask you about Naomi, because I think she's. She's still someone that the, the tennis world is trying to figure out a little bit. I mean, first from a 
from a tennis standpoint, if we had spoken a year ago and I said by the middle of June 2019, she'll be ranked number one in a, a two-time major winner with, with a Hall of Fame resume, what, what do you say to that? I mean, I would have said, yeah, it's definitely possible. It's, it, it, it's the goal. But um, if that happens or not, uh, that's not in our control. You know, it's the same, the same approach I take with every player. You know, I want them to really focus on things they can control, which is the day ahead of them. And they should try to get the best out of it and to make the right decisions on court when we have a match. And then I do believe that everything else will fall together and go by itself. You know, time is something you can't rush. And ever. if she was going to be number one in the world uh, in January or next year or this year, that's not in our hands because you can control what the other guys do as well. But, um, yeah, it wasn't, uh, it's not that I wouldn't have believed it. You know, it's just something that um, it, it, it happened that quick and, you know, obviously we were all very excited about it and happy and um but i always tell my players that i want them to focus on things they can't control which is like i said today the day they have ahead of them and to try to get the best out of them and at the end of the day just to look themselves in the mirror and say i've done everything i could to make this the best day out of my life we go again tomorrow help help us understand naomi a little bit more i mean i, I feel like there's uh there's, there's a lot of fondness for her. I, I think everyone is, uh, I, I think she, she comes across very endearing, but I think there's still a sense that she's, this, this is not a conventional player. This is not a conventional background. And I think a lot of people in the tennis world are still sort of trying to suss her out a little bit. And uh, she's, she's, she's a little different from what people might be accustomed to. Help, help us understand her a bit more. I mean, w when people ask you what she like, what do you tell them? I mean, you know, what is different, you know, what is normal, who gets to say what is normal and what's not, you know, so that's kind of hard for me to answer, but, um, no, she's, um, you know, she's a very sweet and, um, and maybe a little bit more shy than other girls her age about certain things, you know, she wasn't as outgoing, especially when we started, but, um, yeah, I'm glad to see her grow into more, uh, I think she matured a lot over the last year and a half, you know, on court, off court. And, um, you know, she's a very sweet, shy, funny girl, you know, likes to play jokes, likes to play a couple of pranks. Um, yeah, because, uh, uh, you know, I don't know how to say what is normal and what is not, you know, I'm, I'm also not normal, a lot of people say so. Um, but she's a, she's a good girl to be around, yeah. What, I mean, sometimes... You know, sometimes relationships in general, not just player-coach relationships, sometimes relationships sort of fizzle out, and other times someone can feel blindsided. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people were surprised just by the timing of, of your parting. Where, where does this fall for you? I mean, did, did you see this coming, or were you caught off guard like it seemed a lot of people were? Mm, no, you know, like this is um... – this was a decision she made and you know like uh, I mean I talked about it a little bit already in Madrid and um, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave it at that you know I don't like to talk about things that happened like months ago and I um, don't want to roll up old stories so um, with all you know with all due respect also you would you know you would kind of have to go through her for that but um, you know things happen for a reason and it's okay and you know 
she's going her way, I'm going my way now, you know, we play with Kiki and uh, things are going good for her, you know, she's the number one in the world, um, you know, she, she's doing good and uh, I'm happy and that's all that matters, you know. I, I saw on, on WTA uh, Insider, you you had said you, you would consider working with her again, though, if, if she wanted that. I mean, yeah, with all my former players, you know, I, I, I never say it's over, you know, whether, you know, Serena, Vika, Sloan, Caroline, I want to believe that, you know, um, you never know what happens down the road, so I don't know why I should, um, why I shouldn't be able to work with them, you know. I definitely hold no grudge against any of them, so I'm always open. I'm always open for anything, and um, but right now I have a different different type of focus. You know, uh, I have to focus on helping Kiki achieving her dreams, and then um, that's where I put my energy now into. But um, other than that, yeah, of course I can. I'm not gonna say no. I would never work with her or never work with this person. No, that's absolutely not me. And um, I always do believe that two individuals can always make something work if they really want to. And um, yeah, that's just my. So- so you've worked with, um, I mean, you've worked with with probably half a dozen players, and we see this a lot with coaches working with any number of players. How does that work in terms of what you reveal to your current player? I mean, when if if Kiki if Kiki Vladenovich played yeah. Serena or Naomi, is is anything sacred? Is there any sort of line a coach won't cross, or it's sort of whoever you're working with now, anything goes? How does that work? I mean, of course, you know, I don't share personal things, you know, like, um, I mean, this is, it's a business situation between me and Kiki, and we keep it business on court, and I don't share personal things that I've lived through with, you know, with Serena or Caroline or Naomi, you know, but ultimately, you know, if she is um, on court against her, I'll try to, of course, give her the best game plan I can in order to beat her. So that's that, that's my job, you know. Um, that's what I'm here for. But um, so when it comes to that, yeah, whether her, you know, serve out to the forehand and then attack the backhand or whatever the situation is there, I don't believe that there I should be holding back, you know. Right. But I'm just not sharing anything, you know, anything personal that I've lived through with these guys. That's um. But but as far as the tennis, I mean, it, at at four all in the third set, she always runs around her backhand. As far as the tennis goes, it's any everything is is fair yeah. game. Oh yeah, to me, to me, it is. Yeah, absolutely, of course, of course. H- have you thought about coaching a male player as well? Yeah, absolutely. I had some um, I had some very interesting offers. You know, after Naomi, I had some really interesting offers from some uh, some male coaches. And um, was uh, was almost on the verge of um, of uh, crossing over, but I just felt like that um, it wasn't kind of the right situation for me and for the way I I coach. And uh, I always say that you know I learn so much more from my players than I do than they do from me. And um, you know Kiki was also a type of player that I've never coached. And that's why I was very intrigued by it, and I wanted, uh, you know, I still want to learn as well. And and, and felt like she was the one that could help the most. 
in terms of ranking and you know it's mid-season it's not something you can do a lot and so that's why i i kind of didn't but yeah absolutely you, you you said uh that's interesting you, you you say you've you learn more from the players than you suspect they learn from you you're saying yeah yeah i do want to believe that yeah. what, what do you mean give us uh so get, I'll, I'll name the player you tell me one thing you a, a takeaway i mean what, what what did you learn from uh what one thing you learned from serena one thing i learned from serena how to deal with pressure how to deal with pressure absolutely I think every day, every day with um, with her was uh, was super high high pressure situations. You know, expectations were high. Um, you know, if she would have lost a set, my phone already would have you know got like 10, 15, 20 messages. Ah, what's wrong with Serena? Da da da. You know, um, how to deal with pressure. That's something I've, I've learned from Serena. How to uh, work on on the most professional level. Um, day in, day out, and how to keep that intensity up, something that I've learned from her, and that's something that you can't really read about unless you really experience it on on that level. So I was very blessed and thankful for her to be, you know, for her to hire me and to, to keep me around for so long. That was, um, that was very, 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 very good for me. It's interesting you said that, because you, you wrote in the book about how you, you wrote in the book about how you had gotten some death threats from Serena's fans after that U.S. Open final. And one of my takeaways from that is that was an insight, that was a window into how much pressure Serena is under. That's how passionately people follow her. That's an indication yeah. of, of sort of the pressure she operates in. Yeah. Um, I, I you, you received those death threats, and what was your response? Um, well, my response always, the first thing to do is that, um, you know, try to see it, you know, try to see it as something good. Obviously, if some of these threats were, like, legit, like, really, really serious, you know, most of them are just, you know, kind of just out there, social media, you know. Right. Um, I don't know how to call them, keyboard bullies, you know, and then when they see me, they would never say something. But there was, after, you know, after the split with Serena, there was, there was one person who was legit describing how he would attack me and where he would wait for me and stuff like that. So it is kind of scary at the same time. And tennis players and tennis coaches are really the most exposed people and the most exposed uh, athletes to the public, you know, on the way to the practice courts and stuff like that. They just go through masses of people. So, um, yeah, but that's... Um, I always try to see the good in it, you know. I always say, like, Billie Jean King said it the best, you know, pressure is a privilege, and if you don't have pressure, if you don't feel people expect something from you, you must not be doing good in life, you know. So I was happy and took it that I was in a good position in my life, and I've worked very hard for this. And, um, yeah, ultimately, you know, the more the more haters you got, the, the, the better you're doing in life, so... I took it as something positive. At least I tried to. How? But how? I did have two sleepless nights. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. Well, and you. Uh, I mean, the the position you were in during that final is is almost. Uh, you you could have written a book about that alone. But but go go back to Serena yeah. though. I mean, more. How how does she do? As you see it, how does she deal with the pressure? Well, no, there's two types of people in 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 my mind. There is some that face the pressure head on. And then some that uh, that want that don't want to deal with it until it's game day, you know. 
So she has found a way of just facing it head on, and uh, it uh, it really it really brings the best out of her. You know, she's got so used to it. She's got so she thrives under it so much that, um, that on on a Grand Slam final, it really does bring out the best of her. You know, Grand Slam semi final that's the most dangerous three there is. You know, when all eyes are on her. You have a better chance of beating her in the early rounds than you do in the later, you know. And um, and then there is others who you know who try to avoid it and um, try to maybe you know joke a little bit more and try to stay as relaxed as they can. But she kind of you know she kind of gets very quiet, gets in like a cocoon of focus, and um, everything she does is just perfect and it's routine. And um, and nobody's allowed to have one slip up in that routine, and that's what helps her through it, you know. And then, like I said, others are just kind of like taking it what the day brings. So you kind of have to figure out what works best for you. And um, yeah. How how much are um how aware are other players of how their opponents deal with pressure? I mean, is there do the players have a sense of who handles it and who doesn't? Not really, but I think you do see it uh, with um, in the result. You know, there's a lot of players who have, um, you know, who've gotten to a lot of finals and they never really won them. You know, of course, there could be a lot of coincidence behind it, but at the same time, maybe there's something how they approach it when they are on the big stage and maybe a certain routine would help them to get into that focus that they don't waste too much energy and focus on doing other stuff but just to kind of go into this automated routinery where they just you know what helps them get into the zone um but um no i don't think i don't think i don't want to think that other players pay attention too much on what others do you don't you don't think so because so. because I mean I think a lot of people assume Serena's ability to handle pressure is something that gives her yeah, such an aura and an advantage heading into a match yeah but she's a very special she's a very special individual when it comes to that and um, you know she's been um, she's been taught that from a very very young age and um, Mr. Williams has done an amazing job with that. And I think that they've been under pressure if you're from a very, very young age and she had to deal with that and struggles. Like life, life kind of built her for this tennis. You know, I do believe that if you've been as much through as Serena has, you know, not saying that other players had had an easier life, but I'm sure that if you've been through as much as she has in her life, uh, you know, playing a Grand Slam final, seems kind of a little bit easier. Right. If that, if that explains it all. Yeah. Is, she, is she winning another major? I mean, she definitely has the potential and chance, of course. As long as she steps on the court, you cannot count her out. I don't care how old she is. As long as she steps on court, in my mind, she always has the chance, 100%. And what, what about the player you're working with? What, what about Kiki, who you know two years ago was, was a top 10 player and... Her, her singles has fallen off a bit, but her doubles is outstanding. Where, where do you see her, and what what's sort of the objective in the summer of 2019 for Kiki Mladenovic? Yeah, 
I mean, um, you know, we, I mean, I've known her for, for a pretty long time now, you know, good friends with the family, and, uh, but we've been just working together for, what is it now, three months, you know, kind of like three months, something right. like that. Um, yeah, I, I do believe that she has, because of her, you know, good double skills, that she can transition a lot of stuff into singles. Um, the good thing is I, I think there's a lot of things we can work on to improve her singles, which is a good thing. You know, it would be sad if we were in a situation and not knowing how to improve. Um, I do believe there's a lot of things we can work on. And um, I, yeah, as I said it from the beginning, I don't want to start with a player who I don't believe they can beat anybody. And, um, you know, she's already proven it. She's beaten Naomi this year twice. Uh, she holds good wins and close matches. She lost last year in a very close match to Serena in Wimbledon. Um, it was like 6-4-7-5 or something like that, very close. Um, she has a very tricky game for a lot of opponents. And um, I, I do see her doing doing good in the future. And I hope that I can be the man and coach to help her. And um, yeah, only time will tell. Let's see. Let's see, our, our goal is set pretty high. I like to set high goals for her. And, uh, and you're, you're okay with and you're okay with the doubles? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, she plays doubles now only at the Grand Slams. You know, she didn't play too much. We played, she played it also in Istanbul. But um, that was just to get some more matches going. Right. You know, and um, now she's only going to play in Wimbledon and then after that U.S. Open. And uh, I do believe that, you know, something like that in Wimbledon, something Serena did as well always, you know, uh, players benefit from getting a lot of it because it's tough to practice on grass. You know, you don't get much practice in. You can't use the court as much as you want. So having a doubles match maybe on the off day is really helpful, you know, to get a little bit of a sort of competition going, practice your bodies, practice serve and return. Um, I think that, that that's a good preparation to use. With all that doubles prize money, you can buy any mattress you want. <laughs> but you have to know which one. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, are you uh, so, so finally you're you're promoting this book during Wimbledon? Where where can people buy this? Um, as of now, it's only available on the Japanese market. But um, we're working on an English version, and um, it's on Amazon. Um, there's going to be a, a ebook version coming out, but as of now, only in Japanese, like I said. And um, I'm gonna, we're gonna try hard to see if we can get something English done. It's not confirmed yet, but um, we're working hard on it. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually really, really excited about this. And there's gonna be like a little treat, you know. We put like a, like a golden ticket in it, where. Um, you know, kind of like the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory type of thing. Nice. Where people in Japan, you you know, you, you buy the book and there's a ticket in it. I want to play with you, you know, for like an hour. Have a little sit down, have a little tea, and you get to ask me anything you want. So try to do something fun for the readers as well. So if you buy the right book in Japan, uh, you, you get an hour session hitting with you. You get an hour session with me. You get a tea. You get a lunch, and uh, yeah, you get uh, you get a tennis racket, and um, yeah, and part of it, of course, also goes to goes to charity. You know, um, 
I'm gonna, uh, there's a Japanese charity we're working close together with. There's Naomi's charity. I also want to give back to Naomi's charity in Haiti. And um, it goes to two charities. So I, I really, really hope that uh, my first book, uh, I can really, you know, turn some people's lives around and help them. You know, there's a lot to it. I, I, I really open up, you know, there's a, uh, it goes as far as, you know, we talk about suicide, you know, um, where I share, you know, the crazy thing is just before I started this book, my mom was um, cleaning out my room that I had, you know, and I found a, a very personal suicide note that I had written myself when I was just 13 years old. And I talked about this in the book. And um, so it's, it, a lot of it is personal as well. And um, it, was a, it was a fun process though, but just sharing a lot as much as I can. Right. You, you Sounds like you put it all out there. I, I try to be as open as I can. I'm usually a very open person, All you right. know, and um, yeah, I try to, to give as much as I could. Well, good good luck with this. I, I have an English copy. I, um, I, I'm just at the part where you go to the Overwatch, you go to the video game uh, show on the eve of the U.S. Open, so um, I, I hope, uh, I hope yeah. this makes it out of Japan. I suspect it will, and... Um, Good, good, good luck with it. Good luck with Kiki, and um, thanks, thanks for the time today. No, thank you so much, sir. Thank you, and um, all the best to you too. Have a good day. Hey, you too. See you at Wimbledon. Take care. All right. Thanks to Sasha Bain for uh, spending some time over the phone talking tennis and talking about his new book. Um, we'll see how he does with Kiki Mladenovic at Wimbledon. New challenge for him. Um, again, bit of a surprise in the tennis world that he had coached Naomi Osaka to two major titles and they split days later but so it goes in the revolving door that is tennis coaching uh Jamie you listened to that uh conversation top line thoughts what struck you uh, I was interested to hear about his thoughts on on Serena and how she deals with pressure but the one thing that always interests me about tennis in general is just like as you said the whole coaching carousel and the relationship and how you know someone bounces from a to b to c and back to b and to c again and it's it's interesting so it was nice to hear him kind of be honest and say yeah well if i'm no longer with player a and i go to player b i'm gonna tell her about player a and and what she does on the court and what her tendencies are um and so you know as he said uh, he's not gonna talk about their personal lives but when it comes to tactics and um you know tendencies on the court it's it's interesting to hear that he has no remorse carrying that along with him from wherever he goes might suggest there's some uh perhaps some analogs to uh breakups and romance um in that but it does seem like there's a line you draw right so you don't say she's got daddy issues or something deeply personal, but it does sound like anything tennis related is fair game. So if Jamie Lasanti always serves out wide when she's playing nervous and if she keeps serving out wide, that's a good sign. She's feeling nerves. That's, that's kosher. It's, um, it's interesting. I don't know how I would feel. I, th I think it would be very jarring as a player to look over and see your opponent being coached by your former coach. Right. A lot goes into that. That's a very personal relationship, coach player. And that's why I think the 2018 U.S. Open final is just there's so many layers to that match. Um, but that was kind of the most interesting one was Sasha being sort of in the middle of Serena and then Naomi and all of the, the little details between the two players. And there he was. So I wonder how much he 
maybe cross those lines a little bit after working with Serena for so long to to kind of pump Naomi up and and give her what she needed to carry her over the finish line there. So yeah, I do think you could give a really effective pep talk if you had that firsthand knowledge of the opponent. Right. Look, all the pressure is on her. You don't know how badly she wants this 24th major. She's had all sorts of experiences at this tournament and on this court. You should use that as, as a virtue. I think it, it's really, there's a lot of complexity there. I also think as a, co- as a coach, and, and if, I'm, if I'm Naomi and Sasha's talking to me about Serena, no matter what he's saying, honestly, in, in the moment or before the match, I'm going to believe him right. a little bit more than anyone else because of his experience. So in that respect, Sasha could have honestly said whatever he really wanted to say, you know, like, oh, when, when, when Serena does this, this means that she's tired or this means that and kind of giving her these little cues that maybe actually don't mean anything. But for Naomi uh, in her position, maybe she's thinking, wow, OK, like I have a significant advantage here, um, you know, and, and stepping onto the court. It's it's one of those things where if you have that little bit of confidence, it might, makes all the difference. Might I suggest something? Yes. If you have the leverage that a Serena Williams would and does have, wouldn't you be inclined to have a non-compete? Yeah. Listen, for uh, I mean, it can't be restricted. I mean, there, there are guidelines here, but. Right. For, uh, you know what, I'm Naomi Osaka, and I say, here's your U.S. Open bonus in exchange for this. If we part ways, I'm not comfortable with you coaching someone for 24 months. Take it or leave it. Um, I think that would be a valid labor contract. That would really shake things up, though. I mean, there's so many coaching changes. Why would you let someone walk out the door and immediately reveal everything about your game to someone you could possibly be playing? I mean, does that this doesn't really exist anywhere else in any other... Well, not about sport, but certainly industry. Right, right. right. But in sport-wise, I mean, you have coaches going. You You can't tell Steve Kerr he can't leave the Warriors to coach the Knicks. But the flip side is these are independent contractors. You could say these are trade secrets. I think a top player would have a lot of leverage. Anyway, uh, that's more of a thought exercise. (laughs) Um, I still think one of the great untold stories, and he didn't clearly want to go there, and that's obviously his prerogative, Sasha's. I do think this departure was one of the stranger interludes in tennis, and I think a lot of people are wondering, is more going to come out that might add some insight? But uh, very strange to see a young player break through, win consecutive majors, reach number one in the world, have all of this good, you know, it's financial, it's rankings, it's everything sort of good that you aim for starts to materialize and then suddenly take on a new coach. That was a very, very strange. And, you know, I, I don't think either party is necessarily obligated to go into details, but I, I do think he's got to expect people are going to ask him about that. Right. And I think we talked about this in, in the context of Naomi, that so much had gone, had happened for her, like over the course of such a short period right, of time right. in terms of sponsorships and just her overall celebrity and, and all of these things. And I think her with her personality combined with that, um, you know, I think that may have had something to do with the timing and details of their relationship. But it's interesting to see, uh, you know, in the book and as you referenced the, uh, in the WTA Insider article, he did say that, you know, like, I, I, I miss Naomi and I, I would go back to coaching with her if the opportunity presented itself. So um, that makes you think that maybe there wasn't so much bad blood or something there in the breakup as as um you know it was maybe reported it was it about money or whatever the case is but um as you said i think perhaps there's something we we don't know to the story but it's their their decision there to keep it 
under wraps. I also I did not uh, I did not want to go down the rabbit hole of of encore coaching, but um, that's been a topic in uh, heavy rotation. I'm surprised that's your. Uh, I it's you know I mean I, I feel like we're all we're all talked out at some extent. I think that um, Wimbledon will have a few things to say about that in the next few weeks. Um, I don't think Wimbledon's particularly happy that this issue is still out there percolating, and Wimbledon carries great sway and has a certain moral authority that I, I would suggest no other event necessarily does. But um, I, I do think that the, the role of tennis coach is really fascinating, and part of what makes it fascinating is that players' needs are so different and that in some cases it's comfort, and we've seen players roll with parents who may not know anything about the player they're p- competing against. They may not know about string tension or uh, you know what rankings implications but it's just a sort of a source of comfort and they know how to motivate. And we had Sophia Cannon talk about her father, for example, who just knows how to motivate her. Right. Um, other relationships are, are much more complex. We saw Simona Holop and Darren Cahill are, are back together. Right. I like the storyline. I think coaches probably are, are part of the narrative that don't get told enough. And we talk about coaching changes in other sports. It's something we're very much accustomed to talking about. And it's time for the coach to go and wouldn't Coach X be better with Team Y? I think sometimes we dance around it with tennis. I just think, well, I'll say it one more time, and then we can move on to our next topic. I, I just think the way this whole encore coaching hand is being handled is really disingenuous and dishonest. Well, Federer commented on it this week, and what was interesting about what he said and his perspective is that, you know, he said, I, I have the best team in the world, right? So it would sort of be unfair for me to, I guess, Can benefit from that. that. Oh, um, Roger. Which is which is interesting, but I think it raises a good point that, you know, as you're saying, some people have their parents as coaches. Some people can't afford certain level of coaches or as many coaches for all these different things. Um, and so that just sort of increases the divide and, and the gap there between, you know, the, the hundredth whatever ranked player and, and the top tens. And so... There's something to be said there about uh, keeping keeping everything fair uh, in that respect. Right. Generally. Well, what what about? Um, I mean, I do think it's. I mean, Ro- only Roger Federer says, you know, I would hate to benefit from this. Uh, <laughs> a- any other again, any other competitive industry, you go for every possible edge. I mean, Roger Federer could very easily say, I think there should be a five coach minimum. Um, interesting that Roger Federer's objection is that it might give him an unfair advantage. But I, I think apart from the guy who's ranked number a hundred. What about junior tennis? I mean, in theory, the USTA is doing this culturally across the board. Don't you want to make tennis as easy and accessible for as many people as possible? What The rich kid from the suburbs is able to bring his coach with him or else has parents that can take off a day of work and consult them during the match. I mean, it seems to me this is just – there's a lot going on here. One of them is that this is, I think, uh, a wet kiss to television. And if you look at the, the numbers and the ratings um, of the U.S. Open – principal television deal it was made in another media era and i suspect uh, if that tv deal were being made today the numbers would not be uh quite as swollen what are we going to do to appease our television partner who clearly is not happy by what they're paying vis-a-vis the ratings i think there's some personnel moves at the usta and a a job opening that people are gunning for i mean there's a lot behind the scenes that are informing this but i just don't get it i mean this is a fundamental change and if people want it great I wouldn't necessarily agree with it, but look, if, if the NBA wants a four-point shot next season, right. that's fine. 
but they're going to test it and they're going to poll and they're going to have all sorts of meetings and do the players want it, do the coaches want it. This is just kind of thrown out there. And you said we've had people on the podcast. We've said, what is your data? What is something you can measure that would suggest that you are acting in a way that's consistent with the will of players and fans? And there's nothing. I mean, this is just someone's idea in a boardroom and all of a sudden it's on the table. And player after player after player, Chris Ever just tweeted something while we were doing this podcast. I mean, this steady drumbeat of players and people inside say they don't want it. Go through my feed and it's clear. I mean, 80% of the people, fans don't want it. TV wants it. But you're going to have this really fundamental change. And it's based on nothing other than you want to appease ESP. I just, I don't. There are, I think there are other changes in terms of the broadcast and the media and how you're delivering the game to a fan that can, that are better than this that you're saying. I mean, one thing that comes to mind, and this is a completely different sport, but the new uh, premier lacrosse league that has just kind of launched, they have done a lot with being innovative in terms of those things that fans want to see, whether it's in the middle of the match, they're doing interviews or there's, there's mics and all these different elements of the game. They're not, you know, changing the rules. They're not saying, you know, a player can have this ability during the game and they're not doing any of that. And so I think that maybe there's something to be learned there um, in terms of, as you're saying, appease the people that they're trying to without fundamentally changing the rules and upsetting the people who are playing the game, literally. Can I pivot and blindside you with a question that has nothing to do with tennis? It, do, it has a lot to do with tennis, but only peripherally. Sure. It occurred to me just now here, as an elite soccer player, you actually have some take on this that is not just elite a knee-jerk is an hot take. Word. Um, the celebration of the U.S. Women's World Cup team, yeah. which became—I mean, I don't know—maybe this again, maybe this is specific to my feed. This was a huge deal in um, in my media silo. And a lot of hot takes and a lot of roll your eyes and a lot of middle-aged men sounding like middle-aged men. Um, but I do think there's sort of an interesting broader discussion there. What was your What was your reaction to that? You know what I'm talking about. I mean, let's just for people that the celebration, goals. they scored 13 goals against a Thai team. And there was criticism and, and condemnation in, in some parts. And, and I think um, the flip side is commendation in others that the U.S. women... Uh, celebrated enthusiastically, even when the outcome was no longer in doubt. I, I didn't really have, personally, I'm in the middle of the seesaw on this one. I don't, didn't have a take. Great. I'm kind of libertarian here. But what did what do you think of that? Uh, yeah, I think in my position, I've been, uh, I've been in the Thailand role where you are getting battered by a team or, you know, maybe not that bad. But I think once the team starts playing keep away, for 45 minutes so basically not scoring goals just passing the ball around making you run around like crazy basically toying with you that is worse than them actually trying to go for goal and actually compete with you because in that way you're giving them the you're giving the opposite team the ability to fight back and to you know to, to compete I, it's just that much more disrespectful i believe um, so I had no issue with the scoring of the goals and in terms of the celebrations. I don't think that it was disrespectful. I think these women are in the middle of a really huge battle with something with, with the, their pay and, and equality in that respect. And they're given a stage right now that they should, I believe, uh, celebrate in that way. I mean, 
that's an incredible thing for some of those players who either score their first World Cup goal or are just getting started on the team. There's a lot of young women on that right, team. Right. Um, I, I don't have an issue with it. No, I mean, I think there are a lot of interest. I mean, I, I hated the knee-jerk hot take, but I do think sort of the broader issues are interesting. And one of them, I think you're right, that there is this legal battle going on. And I think that's a context for this whole Women's World Cup about equal pay and about U.S. soccer and what federations owe to gender. Some of it has overlap with the equal prize money that we talk about in tennis. I think some of this people don't understand soccer, and it's not like a forehand winner. It's not like you're serving an ace. Like scoring a goal is something that does not happen right. 12 times in a match per player. I mean, this is a fairly unique experience, right? Right. I mean, I think you kind of equated to someone dropping to the court after they've won a match, even if that match is a semifinals match or a quarterfinals match, you know, a player who hasn't been there. Um, you know, maybe they've been out of the game for four years. They come back, they have this amazing, incredible comeback, and they make a final or they, they, they win a tournament somewhere. I mean, this is the equivalent of a Grand Slam that hasn't happened for four years. I was going to say, there's, there's <laughs> six, 16 Grand Slams, you know, 16 majors are played right. in the interval I mean, of one World Cup. The, the occasion of this World Cup uh, in the context of what these women are fighting for, I think that if they're not showing that passion on the on the field, like what are they what are they fighting for? They're fighting off the field with so much passion and so much heart for this that they need to that needs to be doubled down when they get on the field. I was thinking when I first started covering tennis, late nineties. I'm still trying to figure out this whole world, and I said to someone, and I can't even remember who it was, basically like, do you ever feel like giving your opponent a go? I didn't even want to guess what player it was. But do you ever feel like giving your opponent a game? Do you ever feel bad when it's five love? I think it was Martina Hingis, actually. I'll, I'll call her out. Um, and she gave me a look like, are you crazy? Like, I want to win love and love. Like, I don't want to give anyone anything. And part of it was, unlike soccer, there's no clock to run out. Like, you don't want to give any quarter because we've seen this before. It's five, five love turns to five five really fast. Right. The Australian Open uh, had a women's semifinal that uh, is – proof just a few days ago but the other flip side is exactly what you said which is it disrespects the opponent more to toy with them or to not play it 100 percent. it's like you know you have this with your kid dad play your hardest right. it's the same the disrespect is greater not giving honest competition than it is running up the score it's just not fun when your dad doesn't right. actually try or appear to be actually trying but the message is that fun. you're not my i mean the the insult is greater when someone is taking their, their foot off the gas pedal. I think that's something people lost sight of. Um, anyway, I um, will have a guest on next week to talk uh, Wimbledon. I don't want to give anyone away or create undue pressure, but uh, I think her, well, we'll just say, uh, I think we're looking for L Davenport. Uh, that's too obvious. Let's call her Lindsay D. That, <laughs> that, might, be, uh, that might be more subtle. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, thanks. Good conversation, Jamie, as yeah, always. Thank you. Thanks to uh, Sasha Bayin. Again, his book is called Strengthen Your Mind, 50 Habits for Mental Change. Um, I don't know if you heard him talking about the, the suicide note he found. I did not get to that point in the book, but I did read about the death threats he received. So th this is not uh, Pablum. This, this is a book that someone clearly has uh, devoted themselves to and, and spoken about with uh, a, a fair level of candor. So um, thanks, thanks to Sasha, as always. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Again, we will do it again next week. Have a good week, everyone, and uh, subscribe, leave a review. You can um, subscribe it's on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever fine podcasts are sold. And uh, we'll do it again in seven days. Take care.
We'll be right back.